Each one of us has a story of our life that we could tell today. Every one of you does. Every one of us. From our birth and our childhood to the way that many of us have grown up and and lived our lives in in different and unique ways. We all have unique life journeys that have brought us to where we are now. Hometowns and nations, family members, loves, moves, education, jobs, joys, sorrows, challenges, celebrations. My own story would take you on a journey from a large family in a little town in California to the eventual eventual forming of my own little family here in the relatively big city of Ottawa. I could illustrate in many ways. I could draw it out on a map for you or write down my memoirs, tell you stories, show you pictures, all kinds of things. Now, my story might be fascinating to some of you, probably for most of you it might be a little bit boring, but most of us are so self-absorbed, including myself, most of us are so self-absorbed that our own story is all that matters to us. We don't even stop to think about the fact that everyone else has a unique and incredible story as well. I mean, look around the room. Okay, just look around. Turn around. See who's here. There's about at least over a hundred of us here. Every single one of us with a unique life journey. With a unique story. We could fill this room with fascinating and harrowing Tragic and wonderful stories from our lives. But far greater than even considering each other's stories, there is a greater story yet. A true story. A true story of what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen on the earth. Have you ever felt that you were created for something bigger than yourself? Like you should have bigger goals or aspirations in your life? Bigger ones than you do? Like maybe that you wish your life was more significant, more fulfilling, more lasting. Like you were made to be part of something that is beyond yourself. That's because you were. None of our stories are meant to be meaningless. And none of our stories are meant to be all about ourselves. I love the way that Paul Tripp describes this. He says this. He says, There is woven inside each of us a desire for something more, a craving to be part of something bigger, greater, and more profound than our relatively meaningless day-by-day existence. Maybe that's why a human being would ever want to climb Everest, traverse the oceans in an all-too-small sailboat, or attempt any feat not yet accomplished by a fellow human. Perhaps that's why we get hooked on politics, sports, or a myriad of causes that give us something to fight for. We simply weren't constructed to live only for ourselves. We were placed on earth to be part of something bigger than the narrow borders of our own survival and our own little definition of happiness. 
a great way to put it. We, our stories are part of a much larger story. And that's because God has a story. Like I said, a true story. A universal story. A story that has been playing out on the stage of history and is still being told today. I believe that we must all find our own stories within this greater story. God's grand story. This is of such crucial importance that I've decided to take a few weeks for a sermon series to try to attempt to convey to you the heart of God's grand story. I want us to to grasp the overarching arc of history from beginning to end. What is God's story? What is this, the, this bigger thing that we were created to be a part of? What has God done in the past? What is he doing now? Why does it matter to us? Because if we don't understand this, if we don't find our stories within God's story, then our lives might as well be meaningless. But they don't need to be. So I invite you to pray with me as we begin, and then we're going to open God's Word together. Heavenly Father, as we embark upon this journey together, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to receive from you, to hear from you. Help us to know your heart for us, your heart for the human race, your heart for the earth, for the universe. God, these are huge things that we can sometimes not even wrap our minds around. So God, please help us by your Spirit to grasp exactly what you want us to see, what you want us to understand in your Word. Help us to be drawn to worship, to praise you, to live our lives for this something greater that you have given us as a gift, God. We thank you for each of the lives represented here, and I pray that every person's story would be able to be seen in light of your story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would pardon some philosophical jargon for a second, if you were to ask any student of culture what people believe nowadays, what people are into in thinking the way they think, you'd likely hear something about the term postmodernism, okay? A set of beliefs or worldviews that is shaping the way most people think and believe and live, at least in the Western world. One of the chief tenets of postmodernism is the rejection of meta-narratives. In English... <laughs> This simply means that most people don't believe there are any grand stories. Okay, that's what it means. Most people just don't believe that today. There is nothing universal out there that should impact everyone. Now, there are some good aspects to postmodernism. This is not one of them. Not even digging into the fact that it is self-contradictory, self-defeating, and incoherent. As followers of Jesus, we have to reject the rejection of meta-narratives. We have to, because the Bible 
tells us the truth that there is a grand universal story which encompasses and explains all other stories, including yours and mine. This is evident throughout the whole of Scripture, even from the very first verse. In fact, that's where I'm going to have us turn to this morning. I'm going to spend most of our time here. So if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, which is super hard to find. So I'm going to give you the page number. Number 1. <laughs> okay? Genesis chapter 1. Now the opening lines of books can often be highly significant and memorable to us. For example, you'll recognize this one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Recognize that? It's from Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Classic. Or another, speaking of universal truths, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in wants of a wife. (laughs) Sounds pretty accurate, right? That's from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) Or one of my favorites, from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Well, God's book's opening line is even more significant and more memorable than any of those. In fact, many of you probably haven't memorized already. In verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In those ten words, there is so much incredible truth for us to dig into. We're going to begin by stopping after the first four words. Okay? In the beginning, God. There is only one true starting point in the grand story of everything. And that is God. God. In the beginning, God. Not us. Not living things in general, or the earth, or the sun, the solar system, the galaxies, the universe. No, in the beginning, God. God is the, the beginning of, our, of his own grand story, and therefore every other story. Carl Sagan is well known for saying, the cosmos is all that is, or was, or ever will be. You heard that before? Nope. Sorry. Please try again. Roll up another rim. (laughs) You can be a a naturalistic atheist like Sagan if you want, but in order to do that, you have to ignore or dismiss the vast amounts of reasons to believe in God. There's intrinsic design in nature, supernatural events all over the place, miracles. You have to ignore Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection especially. You need to ignore the need for a first uncaused cause and an original designer. The need for a basis for morality and, and love and reason. 
and personality. You can't make sense of it outside of God. Plus, you need to suppress your own conscience and your innate knowledge of something more. The truth is, the cosmos is not all that is or was or ever will be. One thing predated it. One thing is still transcendent to it. And it will be outlasted. And that is because in the beginning, God. Now, it doesn't say in the beginning God was created or born or came into being. No, God already was. So, if all stories begin and end with God, he must be pretty important to the plot, right? It provokes the question, who is God? Who is God? What do we know about God? What is this God like? This is vital. Because if we don't truly understand who God is, we could be following and worshipping a fake made-up God of our the figment of our imagination. And if you've got a fake God, it's not going to do you any good. There is only one true God, the maker of heaven and of earth. And I'm sorry if that sounds arrogant to you. It's not. It's truth. There's only one God, the maker of heaven and earth. So who is this God? It's a way of description. I'm going to give you a list of his attributes this morning, though any kind of effort like this is destined to fall woefully short. How can mere words describe the maker of words? This is kind of like trying to catch a snowstorm in a bowl. Or trying to to suck up an elephant with a handheld vacuum cleaner. (laughs) Because of his infiniteness, God is really beyond our comprehension, our imagination. However, we also believe, concurrent to that, that because of his revelation, his creation, his, his scripture, Christ, other things, we can know things about him. We can know truth about him. If he wanted to, God could have created us and left us totally in the dark. We have no idea what he's like or or where we came from. But that's not what he did. He wanted us to know him. So he revealed himself to us. Now, so we might not be able to fully understand him, but we can know him. It's an important distinction. Let's start with how God chose to describe himself. Do you remember when God appeared to Moses in the form of the burning bush in the desert? Moses asked God, well, who should I, just who should I say is sending me back to Egypt? Who are you? Who's sending me back? God answered, I am who I am. I am who I am. In other words, God is the one who is. He is who he is. He's without anyone else causing or creating or sustaining him. In the word, he is self-existent. Self-existent. He's independent, self-sufficient. He doesn't need anyone else. He is the only one who always was, always is, and always will be. And on this note, we also believe that God is eternal. It's another word, everlasting. He's unchangeable, forever, in both directions. 
To use a, a big theological word, God is transcendent. Transcendent. That means he is above everything else. Genesis 1.1 shows us that he is separate and distinct from all created things. He is distinct from everything. And yet, to borrow another old-fashioned word, God is also imminent. You might not know what that means. That means that he is active and personal within creation. He's not distant or aloof. So he's above everything, and yet he's also intimately involved in everything. He didn't just charge us like a cell phone and wait for our batteries to run out. Colossians 1.17 tells us, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. By the way, that verse is speaking about Jesus. God's, God the Son, which leads us to another thing. We believe that the one true God is a triune God. He is one God, but existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's something we call the Trinity, and it's also something that the Bible has implied is true, but it's something we can't totally wrap our minds around. We don't understand exactly how it works. The reality is, is hinted at even as early as Genesis 1, where you remember how God said, down in verse 26, He said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God didn't have a multiple personality disorder. He was multiple personalities eternally. The fact that God is triune implies that he has existed in loving community forever. Which further implies God didn't need us to complete him. He wasn't lonely. He created us purely because he wanted to. He took delight in that. Not because he needed to. Speaking of God's mind-bending greatness and infiniteness, we believe God is all-powerful. The, the fancy word for that is omnipotent. He is sovereign, entirely in control of everything. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. He's omnipotent. So he's so powerful that he can't even be bound by time or space. The word for that is omnipresent. Present everywhere. He's not the universe itself. That's pantheism. That's a, a false belief that God is everything. He's not. But we also believe he is present everywhere in creation. Last of the omnis, God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. He knows everything. He knows all of history, all of math, all of science, all of morality, all of sociology, all of psychology, all of engineering, all of theology, all of personality, and everything else. <laughs> he knows the past, he knows the present, and he knows the future in exquisite detail. 
He knows the exact number of stars in the universe. He knows the number of cells in your body. He knows every thought we've ever had. He knows every word we're going to say. He is unbelievably great. He's talking about God's great, all-encompassing sovereignty, His omnipotence, His omnipresence, His omniscience. Abraham Kuyper famously exclaimed, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That includes you. Possibly the most awe-inspiring part of God's nature is his holiness. God is holy. A word we sometimes flippantly throw around, we might not understand. I hope you do. And God's holiness, God's holiness speaks to his absolute and utter perfection. It refers to his otherness. His total separation from all that is evil, all that is sinful. He is entirely uncorrupted and incorruptible. Perfectly just. Perfectly righteous. Perfect in every way. He is constantly praised in heaven, we see in Scripture, as holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One holy just won't do. He is so holy so awesomely other than us, that whenever people get glimpses of his holiness, they weren't just odd. They literally thought they were going to die. Because his holiness exposes all unholiness. Our wickedness, our sin. And we instinctually know that our evil warrants God's holy wrath. Which is what makes the last attribute of God I'll share with you that much more amazing. As 1 John 4, 8 tells us in crystal clear fashion, God is love. You can focus on his goodness and compassion and faithfulness Kindness, patience, mercy, grace, goodness. Each one is incredible. I think each one of these are aspects of God's great love. He's perfectly loving. He owes us nothing. And yet he wants to bless. He wants to give. He wants to love. That should utterly humble us as objects of his love. The fact that we can sing, your love never fails, your love never gives up and never runs out on me is mind-blowing. It's astonishing. There's so much about God that we cannot even fathom. 
can only marvel and praise. He is great beyond our comprehension, and he is good beyond our wildest dreams. It's glorious, praiseworthy. How could we ever dare to trifle with sins that spit in his face? How can we ever dare to put created things above the Creator? How can we ever dare to presume to judge how He operates and rules the universe? As Matt Chandler says, trying to figure out God is a foolish act predicated on a foolish overestimation of human intellect and ability. God is incomprehensibly immense, exceedingly expansive, and eternally powerful. And so much so that time and time again, our response to many of the things of God ought to be, I don't know. The psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Tie, I cannot attain it. Okay? We're four words into the Bible. That's okay, because that's the most important. And God is the foundation of everything in existence. He is the only reason there's even an existence to speak about. Which we'll speak about now. The other thing we're going to see from Genesis 1.1 reveals this. That God created everything pervasively. Everything. He created everything there is in existence pervasively, comprehensively. Everything. Okay? Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The term there, the heavens and the earth, was actually a Hebrew term that was used to describe everything. Everything from the sky above to the earth below, God made all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's John 1, 3. Every galaxy, every asteroid, every ocean... Every mountain, every aurora, every lightning bolt, every squirrel, every bird, every blade of grass that we walk upon, every maple tree, every leaf on that tree, every molecule of water, every dust mite, every proton and neutron and electron. Every set of lungs, every finger, every toe, every ear, every heartbeat. Anything you can set your eyes upon, and even the things you can't set your eyes upon, directly or indirectly, God created it. Here's one of the most incredible things about this. He created it all out of nothing. 
Hebrews 11.3 tells us, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It was made out of nothing. Everything we can create as people, look around, there's a lot of things that we create as people, buildings and clothes, instruments, food, skyscrapers, airplanes, everything we can create is created from raw materials we already have. We are sub-creators. We are recyclers. We recycle raw material that's already in existence. God created the raw material. He just spoke matter into existence. And the rest of Genesis 1 describes all the things he created like this. And God said, and God said, and God said, and these things just came into existence. Now, some of you might be thinking, but what about science? Right? Hasn't modern day science removed the need for a creator? Can't evolution explain everything? Well, science can try. But ultimately, science will fail to explain everything. There is a type of evolution that is indisputably part of the way God created the universe. That's the the way that, that things can observably adapt over time within certain boundaries. The, like a, a dog becoming another type of dog. We call that microevolution. We, we know what happens. Then there's a, a type of evolution that is highly unproven. What you might call macro evolution, which in- involves unobservable, large-scale changes, mutations that lead to entirely new species and lead to all kinds of changes. Fish don't become birds. Dogs don't become cats. Apes don't become humans. Some Christians have tried to compromise, maybe I should say harmonize, <laughs> Evolution with the Bible. My opinion, I think they're totally full of baloney. (laughs) But, theoretically, there are ways to harmonize things. So I'm going to say this. Even if you believe in evolution, that still shouldn't keep you from coming to Christ. Okay? But the way I see it is that there are, these are two competing and contradictory grand stories of everything. Meta-narratives, to borrow the term. I'll tell you, it's really a stretch when people try to, to bring them together in my mind. I'll tell you what isn't a stretch, though. If you believe in the infinite God that we just described, to believe that he could have created everything in whatever way he chose to do so. That's not a stretch. And the most thorough description we have of him creating everything is here in Genesis 1. But this chapter doesn't only say that God created everything pervasively, it also tells us that he created everything perfectly. Perfectly. God's creation in its original form was 100% perfect, beautiful, flawless, harmonious. It was good. Just skim through Genesis 1. Okay, starting in verse 3. It says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was 
good. Verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Verse 12, The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Skip down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This tells us clearly that everything God created was perfect. Everything came from his perfection tells us that we can rightfully enjoy creation in its various forms. The sunshine, the rain and snow, the outdoors, birds, animals, pets, people, different foods. 1 Timothy 6.17 tells us that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And sure, created things can be grossly misused or overvalued, but they are inherently good. And ultimately, they should remind us of our Creator's goodness. Our enjoyment of God's gifts should never terminate on the gift, but on the giver. Now, if everything was created this way, if everything was created good and perfect, it begs the question, then why isn't everything good? Why is there death? Decay. Destruction. Now that's a huge topic for another day. We're going to address some of it next week. Suffice to say right now that evil is not God's fault. It's ours. God gave us a precious gift and we botched things up big time. But the fact remains, from Genesis 1, that, that even we sinful humans were created good, intended as perfect. In fact, 
We're not just another one of God's creations, God's good creations. We are his best creation. Genesis 1 makes it clear that humanity was the climax, the pinnacle of God's creation. Verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. It's only once, notice, that it's only once that mankind entered the picture that God said it was very good. Good before that. Now it's very good. What we learn here continues the same thought. God created everything pervasively, perfectly, and with a pinnacle. That's us. Humanity. God created everything perfectly and with a pinnacle of that perfect creation. How are we the pinnacle? Simple. Because we're created in God's image. That doesn't necessarily mean we look like God, but it means that in some ways we are like God. We are relational and volitional and rational and spiritual beings. That sets us apart from the rest of creation. Without the image of God in us, we'd just be marginally less stupid animals. (laughs) But we are graced with the image of God. Therefore, everyone has intrinsic worth. Because of this. It means you have value. That includes the unborn, the disabled, the elderly. Everyone is precious to God. Because we're created in His image. The the truth that we're the pinnacle of God's creation should not lead to pride on our part. Because no matter how incredible we are, we are still infinitesimally small. Dr. Brad Burke tries to illustrate this by describing an imaginary scenario to us. He says this, One day, let's say you decide you want to demonstrate your love. So you go to the world's largest pet store and purchase six billion ants. Returning home, you toss all your cans of Raid into the dumpster and set loose the six billion tiny insects. There you go, little ants. Enjoy your new home. Suddenly, your life is consumed with looking after these minuscule creatures. 
You have five tons of dirt delivered to your home, then spend days shoveling it throughout your house because ants like dirt, not carpet. You feed them diligently. You carefully monitor the room temperature and humidity to their liking. You sleep on the porch to allow the insects to use your bed. And if the carpenter ants decide to make fine shavings out of the exquisite oak furniture that you personally handcrafted, that would be perfectly okay, because that would be fulfilling their passions. And if the nasty fire ants decide to get under your clothes and to bite you in some rather private areas, that's okay too, because that's what some ants like to do. It's an absurd picture, right? But is this not how much of the world imagines God to be? Like he's a cosmic caretaker whose sole function is to make sure that we're having a grand old time? Burke then says this, But I fear that I've committed a grave error in the analogy above. I hope I haven't led you to believe that the distance that exists between the majesty of God's being and us is similar to the distance that exists between us and ants. Actually, in relation to God's infinite and majestic being, we are far, far less than tiny insects. It's an insult to ants. We are unimaginably insignificant in relation to God. And yet, we have this infinite God telling us in no uncertain terms that he cares about us. Psalm 8. 3 to 4 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What is man? And yet, he has made us good. He's made us in his image, crowned us with glory and honor. The fact that we are the pinnacle of God's creation to simultaneously humble us and uplift us. Because we are, we should, we should feel both small and significant. Because that's what we are. We are small and significant. And as the pinnacle of God's creation, we've been given purposes, mandates, if you will, to care for creation as stewards. We saw this in Genesis 1. To be fruitful and multiply as the human race, making more image bearers. And of course, to find our ultimate purpose in loving and glorifying our Creator. Paul Tripp says, in Genesis 1, God comes on the scene the minute Adam and Eve take their first breath. He is there to command their allegiance. He is there to be the central focus of everything they ever think, desire, say, and do. And when he is, their lives have transcendent meaning and purpose. Here's what this means. The transcendent glory that every human being quests for, whether he knows it or not, is not a thing. It is a person, and his name is God. You might hear all of this and think, this, sound, this all sounds so spectacular, so cosmic, so grand. This doesn't sound like my life that unfolds on Monday. 
and Tuesday and Wednesday. Right? You're like, Pastor Matt, you're just talking to little old me. I'm not part of, of something this big. But don't you see it? You are. And that's what's so incredible. Because this doesn't mean that you need to be some earth-shaking revolutionary for the history books. Because God's purposes transform our everyday lives. Even the mundane becomes meaningful when done in light of God's glory. Matt Chandler also says this, apart from understanding God and worshiping Him in this way, everything becomes superficial. Everything from from dinner to sex to marriage to kids to work to arts and literature, it's all shallow, all trivial. But when you understand the driving force behind everything, all of a sudden there is an eternal amount of joy at our disposal because everything we do is enlightened and enlivened by the endless glory of the eternal God. This is so crucial to grasp. It is impossible to exaggerate or clickbait this. (laughs) Our small stories are part of God's grand story, whether we like it or not. And even though we've seriously bungled things up and terribly sinned against a holy God, this God who cares about us offers us mercy and grace and love. How? That part of the story you probably know. The Creator became part of his creation. Lived the perfect life we couldn't. Died the death that we deserve. Rose again in the person of Jesus Christ. This is getting ahead of ourselves in the story, but I have to bring this up today because some of you sitting here may be realizing today that you've gone astray from your Creator. And that you need to reorient your life to His ways today. So if this is you, I exhort you, remember your Creator today, how awesome He is. Realize that you've sinned against Him. Repent of those sins. Run to Him, requesting His mercy. And the unbelievable thing is that because of Jesus, He freely gives it to us. And He promises that we'll be part of a restored creation one day. If this is you, I hope that you run to your Creator today. I hope you can see what I'm trying to get across here. We're the pinnacle of creation. But if you think we're the point of creation, think again. 
Okay? We've been slowly developing a sentence as the big idea for today, but it's not quite complete. Finish the sentence. I'm going to have you turn ahead to Romans chapter 11. That's in the New Testament towards the end. It's on page 947 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Romans 11. The middle of a long and deep theological letter, Romans, very wonderful letter too. The Apostle Paul breaks into song. A song that reflects the proper response to pondering God, as we've been doing today. There's only one conclusion, and that's praise. Look with me in Romans 11, starting in verse 33. Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has been given a gift or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I love that last verse. For him, for from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So, God created everything pervasively, perfectly, with a pinnacle from himself. From himself, which means that everything we see is from God. He is the giver of the gifts. Verse 35 said that no one has ever been able to pay him back. Or who has, been, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? It's impossible. His gift is so great that it's impossible for us to ever repay him. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to give everything we can back to him. We should. But just don't think that a little bit of service, a little bit of worship, or a little bit of tithing is going to satisfy him. The only thing that ever satisfied God was his own sacrifice through Christ. We've got to place ourselves under that sacrifice and surrender our all to him. All things are from him. Next, all things are through him, which means that everything in creation has come out of his being. He created out of himself. This is why so much of creation is beautiful. Because it reflects the glory of God. It's why people are beautiful. Why we fall in love. It's why sunsets are spectacular. It's why mountains and flowers and stars and animals amaze us. Because everything has been created out of the infinitely beautiful and glorious nature of God. It can't help but scream his praise. From himself, out of himself, and finally, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. To himself are all things. In other words, they are for himself. For his own glory. God created everything perfectly, 
or pervasively, perfectly, with a pinnacle, from himself, out of himself, and for himself. If you think this sounds selfish or egotistical, it's not. Because God is so deserving of glory that if he didn't reserve all glory for himself, he would be ironically participating in idolatry which would then make him not God. This is why the root of all of our sins is idolatry. As Dr. Carson told us a couple weeks ago, the de-godding of God. Because everything is for him. If he was a fallen human like us, then yes, it would be selfish for God to demand glory, but he's not. He is perfectly holy and therefore deserving of all glory. And therefore the point of everything in existence is for God. It is to God. You can fight that. You can rebel against God. But I'll tell you what. Even your failures are only going to magnify God's holiness. And magnify his grace. You can live your life as his enemy, but your story is still just going to feed right into his. We need to admit, as to borrow Paul Tripp's words, we're all glory junkies. We're glory junkies. We love the, the fanciest, frilliest, funniest, and most fabulous feats out there. Love them. We're, we're hardwired this way. We adore the spectacular. We are awestruck by greatness. So we stare at sports highlights. Touchdowns and slam dunks and amazing goals and home runs. We, we stare at them. We gawk over clothes that stars wear. The glamorous. We drool over delicious foods. We rave about a movie that just blew us away or a book that amazed us. We, we love roller coasters and theme parks and water slides and huge TVs and jumbotrons and fireworks. We pause to, to just be in awe at a sunset. Marvel. These are whispers, echoes of the glory that we yearn for, that we were created for. Creation is glorious. The Creator is more. And we were made for more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you broaden the horizon of our landscapes? 
Help us grasp this. The glory that is yours. Our lives are so small in relation to you. We are so insignificant, and yet you tell us that we have a significance when we find our lives in you. God, I pray that for every person here, that they would find their significance in you, that they would be satisfied in you, that they would live their lives for your glory. Awaken our hearts to praise. Waken our hearts to love you more every day. For yours is the kingdom and the glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen.